0: following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Today we are starting a new series, which I am actually very excited about in the midst of all this stuff. Um, I'm really excited about this. I have no idea how this is going to go for the next 20 or 30 minutes, um, because there's been so many other things on our minds, but I am very excited to be starting this uh, series on... The book that we're reading together for our Artisan Summer Read, which is Scott McKnight's book, The Blue Parakeet, it's a book that's subtitled Rethinking How You Read the Bible, which I guess depending on how you've been reading the Bible might be more or less provocative than it needs to be, or it might be, might be right down the middle for you, I don't know. Um, he begins the book by talking about how the Bible was taught to him growing up and how he had a fairly radical shift in, in it later in life. So, I think for him, it's an entirely appropriate subtitle. So, we're going to be looking um, at this book for the next four weeks, but really, it's not about the book. The book is designed to push us into a bigger thing. Uh, We have, this is the second year now where we as a community have decided to follow a thread through our ministry year, which begins in July. So, we're just at the beginning of our year together as a community. And last year, our thematic thread was beyond our walls. We had spent a lot of time talking about this building and the, the purchase of it and the renovation of it and everything else to do with it, and we wanted to reset our minds and hearts um, to be outwardly focused. So that was our thread last year, um, and we, you may remember we read a wonderful book by Henry Nowen called Reaching Out. That was our, our first ever summer read. We read it last summer together and spent three or four weeks talking about that topic. And it kicked us into the thread for the year. This is the, the same idea this year. The, the, the purpose of going through this book is uh, not only to have a great book to read together and experience that wonderful question, what if all of our artists read the same book? But it's to push us into our thread for the coming year. And the, the thread for the coming year is shaped by the words. And so I need to spend a minute or two explaining to you what that Thematic thread means and, and why we're doing it, and then we'll get into the first part of McKnight's wonderful little book. Have you been reading the book, by the way? Raise your hand if you've read some or all of part one, which is what we're covering today. That's a really good job by the community. I have more copies here. If you want them, we will give them to you, or uh, if you'd like to sell, buy them from us, our cost is, uh, I think, $13, and you can give cash or you can pay for that online with our online giving system. Or you can write a check or an IOU, whatever you like to do. So the thematic thread for this year is shaped by the words. And the S at the end of that phrase is intentional, shaped by the words, as in the words of Scripture, the words of the Bible. And the reason that I chose to say words instead of word is because I want to be clear about where our, uh, where our worship needs to be directed. Um, specifically, we do not we do not worship this book, though we esteem it greatly. Right. We do not worship the words of Scripture, there, and, and, and it's not even what we worship; it's who we worship. Who we worship is Jesus. Jesus is the Word of God. You could put a capital W on that, and it might help you understand where I'm going with that. Jesus is God's logic, to use the the term that John uses in John chapter 1. Jesus is the logic of God. Jesus uh, is the one about whom John wrote and said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then a few verses later said, The Word took on a body, became flesh, and tabernacled among us, lived in our neighborhood. And so it's very common to refer to Scripture as the Word of God. And ultimately, I do not have a quibble with that phraseology. However, I want us to be clear throughout this year as we dig deeper and deeper into Scripture and become, I hope, more and more shaped by it and submissive to it, that we remember that it is Jesus who is the true Word of God. Jesus is the best expression of who God is. Right. Um, NT Wright says, when John declares that in the beginning was the Word, he does not reach a climax with and the Word was written down, but and the Word became flesh. All right. Now, if you want to go a little bit deeper with this subtopic, this little idea, um, I posted an article by a wonderful pastor and thinker this morning named Brian Zond. Posted it to Facebook and Twitter. So if you um, uh, use Facebook or Twitter, you can just put slash Artisan Church at the end of it and you'll find that article, a really wonderful article, and it's called Scripture as Witness to the Word of God. And Brian Zahn's point, which I ent- entirely uh, agree with and endorse, is that the, we love the Bible and, and revere and respect the Bible, not because it is God, but because it shows us God, because it points us to God's best expression of the best revelation of god the best way we can know god which is jesus himself all that being said the bible is the best witness we have to jesus and if we want our hearts to be shaped like his heart and we do right we're all nodding our heads right now we want to be like jesus nobody's going ah eh, jesus is okay i want to be like messy <laughs> right that's a World Cup reference. I'm trying to be pertinent and relevant, but uh, I have a very complicated relationship with soccer, so. Um, but if we want our hearts to be shaped like the heart of Jesus, then we must, be, we must be willing and intentional about allowing our hearts to be shaped by the words of Scripture, shaped by the words. That's our thread for the year. That's what, that's what we're going to follow this year and i hope that we will follow it in all areas of our life together as a church not just in the the sermons and things which by the way will be much more derived directly from scripture whereas in the past year with beyond our walls they were started with topics and we used scripture throughout of course to to look at those topics and understand them, but uh, not. But I, I want I want us to be shaped by the words of Scripture, not just here on Sundays, but in our homes, in our private devotional lives, in our families, and in our small groups. And if you're not involved in a small group, I would really, really encourage you to look into getting into one. And we'll be making a push for that in the fall, uh, but you don't need to wait until then. Um, Jamie is right here. Can you raise your hand, Jamie? And is Jenny here today as well? Jenny's in the same road right there. Both of them could give you good insight as to how to get into a small group sooner than the fall when we make our big push. All right. So, the book. Let's dive into the book. Scott McKnight's The Blue Parakeet. Scott McKnight, by the way, is a covenanter, which you may not know what that word means, but um, our uh, family of churches, our denomination is the Evangelical Covenant Church. I always say it's not the thing that gives us our primary identity, but it is an important relational connection that we have with other churches throughout, uh, around the world really, but particularly here in America. Uh, And the shorthand form of that is um, covenant. They just call it the covenant for short, which uh, if you've played Halo is a little bit disconcerting, but. um. (laughs) Uh, Scott McKnight is a a member of our denomination for a while, taught at uh, the Covenants Seminary. And uh, so he's, he's in the same kind of theological stream as we are, which is good. So why is it called The Blue Parakeet? If you haven't read the book yet, you may be confused by the odd title. And uh, <laughs> I, just, I just said yes. <laughs> I'm very confused by the odd title. Well, let's just briefly explain um, this. And really, it, we can go through the topics without this. But uh, Scott and his wife, Chris, are bird watchers. And so they s- sit in the backyard and watch the watch the birds come to the bird feeder, and uh, they, they enjoy s- identifying and r- recording viewings of different, or glimpsings of different species of bird, right? So they have all the common ones, the sparrows and the chickadees and um, everything that would be normal for their part of the country. And one day, they were in the backyard uh, and saw this strange flash of blue, right? And so he begins to go through in his head, is this a, a western bluebird? Is it a... a a bunting or I I don't know any bluebirds I'm just like making stuff up right now but um, is it the azure cardinal I don't know um (laughs) that's not a real bird so but it would be a good name for one what he discovers eventually is that this is not a wild bird it's it's an it's an escapee it's a pet parakeet that got out of somebody's bird cage and now is living there, and all the other birds are completely freaked out by this thing that they've never seen before, right? So they don't go near it for a while, and then they are you know they're scared away, and then they come back, and eventually they start to imitate it, and and it becomes one of them for a little while, um, and uh, he he tries to capture it and you know maybe try to find the owner or put it back in a cage where a parakeet doesn't actually belong, but you know for the, <laughs> but belongs. Um, And of course, the bird does not want to be caged anymore, and so it eventually leaves. So the idea of a blue parakeet is this unexpected, surprising, hard-to-understand thing that enters your world and you just don't know what to do with it, right? And Scott's point here uh, is that sometimes Scripture contains blue parakeets, sometimes We read the Bible and see this thing that doesn't compute for us. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit into any of our pre-existing categories, and we don't know how to respond to it. But like the blue parakeet, the Bible does not want to be caged. It's intended to be free and wild, and uh, if we want to understand it, we have to kind of in some ways be okay with that. By the way, Scott McKnight has a pretty active Twitter account if you're a Twitter user, you can find him at Scott McKnight with one T in Scott, and uh, he actually really is quite responsive. If you have questions about the book, you, you know, you could direct them to him at, on Twitter, and he would probably respond to you. And we're also, um, I've seen some of you start to read this book and use the hashtag thing, and I meant to put it on the screen, but if you're a hashtagger, you can do hashtag and, summer read, and that way you can follow along with what your friends and family here are thinking about this book. All right? So, today's topic is story, and we'll get into that in just a minute, but first, I want us to do this prayer, and I, I hesitate to predict what we'll do all year long, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if this prayer returns to us. This is a prayer to be prayed before reading Scripture, and it comes, uh, I believe, from the Book of Common Prayer, which is where our favorite confession of sin comes from. If you can have a favorite confession of sin, that's a little bit of a weird thing to say. Um, so the prayers on the screen here, I'd like us to pray this together because this is where I, I, want, I want God to be directing us into the words of Scripture, um, not just for, to say that we can check off a box or something, right? So let's pray this together, okay? Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So you're going to hear me say this over and over and over again, I think, throughout the year. The Bible tells a story. I think that's the first thing that you should understand and realize before undertaking any study of the Bible, any devotional approach to the Bible. The Bible tells a story, tells one story. Now, it tells it in many different ways. It tells it in many different genres of literature. It tells it as it's written by many different authors who wrote during many different cultures and times in history, but it tells one story. And whenever you approach any part of Scripture, one of your tasks will be to ask and answer the question, where does this fit in the story, capital S? Where does this little... story in the Bible fit in the big story, which is being told in the whole, right? Another way that you could describe the Bible is one that I first heard from Carl Geiberson, who I don't, um, I don't know if it's original to him, but he said, the Bible is not a book. The Bible is a library. It's a collection of books, and they're all, you know, they're not all the same. There's lots of difference and differentiation in the Bible, And I so agree with one of the things that McKnight says. He says, One of the most exciting features of those who learn to read the Bible as story is to see how each book or author shapes the various elements of this plot, emphasizing one element or the other. The Bible is a rich tapestry that you can gaze at endlessly. So, what is the story? Uh, I mean, this is our main task for this morning, is understanding what the story is. That's, if you go away with nothing else, I'd like you to go away with some sense of what the, st- the story, with a capital S, is that the Bible is trying to tell. I think it's the absolutely crucial question. So this is McKnight's outline of the plot, and other people have outlined this in slightly different ways, and that's okay, but uh, the, the big picture is, I think, very consistent among people who... Have this approach to scripture. The story comes in five movements, if you will. N.T. Wright calls, them a, he calls it a five-act play. Um, creation, fall, the entrance of sin into the world, covenant community, redemption in Christ, and then consummation, the completion of things at the end. So that's the plot of the story. Creation, fall, covenant community, redemption in Christ, and consummation. Throughout this plot are woven the themes of oneness and otherness. Right? This is McKnight's uh, identification of the themes in the story of Scripture. So let's look a little bit more closely at that plot, that five-movement plot. Right? And uh, if, you're a, if you're a long-time church person one of two things is probably true of you. One is that you get this big story already, and this will be a very quick review for you. And the other is what happened to me when I went to college, um, I'm sorry to say to pursue ministry, not that I'm sorry that I did that, but I'm sorry to say that I didn't understand the big story. <laughs> when, I went to, when I left for college at 17 and didn't, had been in church my whole life, I knew every, every little st- stupid flannel graph thing, everything. Everything. But I didn't know the story. I didn't know how it all fit together. And what a shame. So if that's you, you're not alone. There are lots of people who spend their lives in church and study the Bible um, and love Jesus with all their heart, but they don't understand the big capital S story. All right, so here it is. And I'm going to, uh, it's impossible to tell the entire story of Scripture in the time that I have left. Um, it would be impossible to tell the entire story of Scripture if I'd started at the beginning of my time. But we're going to do our best here. Right? So the first movement is creation. And he uses a phrase which may be confusing to some of you if you hadn't seen it. Um, creating icons. And he uses the Greek spelling, E-I-K-O-N. Right? So that we get the, the I-C-O-N word from, um, from the Greek. Icon means image, right? And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, which contain the creation story, the word icon is used in a key place, which is the description of how God created human beings. He created them in his icon, in his image and likeness. This is Genesis one twenty-seven. We refer to it quite often. Um, in some ways, it's one of the most fundamental themes that you need to understand when you think about who every human being in the world is. You know, um, young, old, black, white, Gentile, Jew, gay, straight, anything, icon, made in the image of God. It goes for Mother Teresa and it goes for Jeffrey Dahmer. That's what he wants you to take from the creation story. That's, that's point one from the creation story. I love how, by the way, how he simply sidesteps the evolution debate <laughs> because that's not the point. <laughs> but in this initial part of the story, you begin to see that theme of oneness come through because humans are experiencing oneness with each other and oneness with God and oneness with their environment, the Garden of Eden, As McKnight puts it, they get to enjoy what the Trinity has always eternally enjoyed, which is perfect communion and mutuality with an equal. And he says, McKnight, nothing in the Bible makes sense if one does not begin with the Garden of Eden as a life of oneness, human beings in unison with God and communion with itself, with one another, and with the world around them. So that's this initial movement in the story of Scripture. The second movement is fall, uh, and his phraseology here is interesting. He, he describes this movement as cracked icons, same word, E-I-K-O-N, God images, right? They've, they've now been cracked by their rebellion against God, and that affects everything. It affects their view of themselves. They have shame that they've never felt before. Shame at their nakedness. Shame of their own amazing, beautiful, God-created bodies. It cracks their relationship to God. Whereas before they had been in communion with Him, now they were trying to hide from Him. So oneness has begun to turn into otherness. It affects their love for one another. Adam and Eve start to blame each other. The first and last time a husband and wife ever blamed each other for something that went wrong. (laughs) So oneness in all these relationships with their self, with their mate, with their God, with their environment has turned to otherness and they're banished from the Garden of Eden. McKnight says the entire rest of the Bible aiming as it will towards Jesus Christ is about turning icons bent on otherness into icons basking in oneness with God, with self, with others, and with the world. But we must resist the temptation to jump to Jesus right away. McKnight points out that there are in his Bible over a thousand pages of content between the fall in the garden and the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. And I think when we tell the story of the gospel, we, we skip that thousand pages. We go right from sin to redemption in Christ. But that's, that's not how the story played out. Not that quickly. It is how the story played out, but not that quickly. In between is the third movement, covenant community. This is the story of God's people, the nation of Israel. Covenant community is the context in which our redemption takes place. I think somebody hashtagged that, Artist in Summer Read, this week on Twitter. Covenant community is the context in which our redemption takes place. And that will remain true even when Jesus enters the story. God's idea of redemption is community shaped. First, Israel, then the church. Now, there are many failures in this story, right? If you, if you have the book, you could look at pages 74 and 75, and there's a, there's a whole list of bullets about all the people involved in this covenant community and the ways they screwed it up. Only Noah and his family survive the flood, and then the man messes things up immediately. Abraham is God's chosen father of his people, and he lies about his wife. Moses murders, rescues Israel at the Exodus, gives them the Torah and a worship center, and then sins in the desert. Israel gets into the promised land, but they can't shake off idolatries. David is the king, and he can't control himself. His son builds a great temple, but he can't control himself either. (laughs) Right? So that within a generation, the oneness nation becomes a two-ness nation. One of those nations gets deported to Assyria while the other, Judah, hangs on longer but finds itself eventually in Babylon. And then God, in his rich mercy, ends the exile and leads Judah back to the promised land and they rebuild the temple and the whole thing starts over again. (laughs) That's the third movement. Covenant community getting royally screwed up. Literally, royally. Because the kings... Sorry... (laughs) The fourth movement is Christ, redemption in Christ, because Christ is what we couldn't be. He is the image of the invisible God, as Colossians says. He is the perfect icon, E-I-K-O-N. He is the perfect image of God. McKnight says, the Bible story has a plot headed in the direction of a person, and that same story is headed in the direction of a community in that person. So, again community does not stop when jesus comes on the scene it is not me and jesus through my bible under a tree loving god and all you guys can whatever right and i I don't have time to read this one but mcknight has this great passage that describes the beautiful gospel of jesus his incarnation his death his resurrection which he says only puts us in neutral. I love that image. <laughs> the resurrection only puts us in neutral. We still need new life. And that's when Pentecost comes and, and, and it's, it's like the gas in the motor of the church. And the fifth movement in this grand story is the consummation, the completion where we will be at one in oneness with God forever. McKnight says that Jesus' first work stands as a partial redemption, which is kind of a maybe controversial thing to say. That might be a little bit provocative for you to hear, that, that Christ's first work stands as a partial redemption, which doesn't mean that you're only partially saved from your sin. It means that the world has only begun to be redeemed in Christ. The fullness of that work will only be complete when Jesus returns and establishes a new heaven and a new earth. And that's the fifth movement, So that's an overview of the story with a capital S that is told in the Bible by all kinds of different authors in different genres of literature, writing from different times in history and different cultural locations. The plot arc of creation, fall, covenant community, redemption in Christ and consummation, the central themes of oneness and otherness. And it's crucial for us as we begin to turn our minds and hearts and eyes to the words of Scripture that we understand that every book in the Bible, every word on every page is a part of telling that story. Let me say one last thing. A little confession about the type of person I am, which is the type of person who uh, I like to say it nicely, I, I enjoy possibilities. The um, not-so-nice way of saying it is that I put off making decisions. <laughs> um, and one of the decisions I had was which book to use for our summer read. McKnight's The Blue Parakeet, which is the right choice, I think, or this other one, which is a little bit nerdier and headier, which many of you would have loved, but some of you would have said, I'm not reading that book, which is N.T. Wright's book, Scripture and the Authority of God. So if you're a super-duper reader nerd and want another book to read on this topic, read this one. It's excellent. McKnight has this five-movement story, and Wright uses a, a, the metaphor of a five-act play, as I mentioned before. All right. And the beautiful thing is that with the five-act play metaphor, you get to have this wonderful opportunity to live into it a little bit. What N.T. Wright says is that we are invited to be actors in the play. That we get to improvise the final scenes of the drama. It works either way whether you have a five-act play or a five-movement story, whether you have it delineated the way Scott McKnight does it or the way Tom Wright does it, either way, the truth is, it's not just a story that exists out there. It's a story that we are part of. And because we are free agents made by God with the ability to determine what our own actions will be, we have the incredible privilege and awesomely daunting responsibility of improvising and becoming part of the story. Now, Wright is careful to say you can't just start improvising a scene from another play. You can't just, you know, pull a gun, right? (laughs) That's like the big sin in improv theater, right? (laughs) Like Michael Scott. Right, You 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 can't start doing My Fair Lady. That's not the story that you're improvising. You have to stay within the confines of the story that God wrote. But you are an actor. You are a participant. You are given this beautiful privilege of of improvising your role, of having some say in how the story affects you and others around you. What an awesome, awesome privilege. Full disclosure, I probably am drawn to this because I've used a very similar kind of uh, artistic metaphor to describe understanding God's will, which is musical improvisation. I'm very drawn to this idea. Um, But it's a beautiful thing. See, the story is not about you. It's about the big work that God is doing in the world, but you are part of the story. And maybe you didn't know that before you came in this morning. Maybe you don't believe it even after I've said it. But the truth is that each one of you, black, white, Jew, Gentile, gay, straight, young, old, man, woman, etc., you are an icon. You are made in God's image and you are part of the story. And so I want you to think about what your role might be in the story. I can only tell you so much. I can point you to Jesus. I can tell you where we fit together. But only you, with the, with the Pentecost fuel of the Holy Spirit, can figure out what your part will be. So as we come to communion together this morning, what I would ask you to do, if you're a quick thinker, you can just come up and think about it on the way. But if you know yourself to be a slow thinker, I want you to wait a minute before you come to the communion table and I want you to think specifically about what is my part in this story? What is my role? What line will I speak into existence next? All right. And then after you've thought about that for a minute, each and every one of you who desires to be part of this story of redemption of the world through Christ is invited to come and celebrate his death and resurrection at the table. This is our response to the Word, with a capital W. It's our response to knowing Jesus. It's it's, it's His way of reaching to us. And it's our response to the words of Scripture as well. Uh, And as I said earlier, there will be a member of the prayer team here if you'd like to have personalized prayer during this time as well. But um, the table will be open. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you first and foremost for your self-revelation in the incarnation of Jesus, the true word of God, that in knowing him we know you. We thank you also for the words of Scripture, which are the very best way that we can understand who Jesus is and come to know him. We pray that during this summer as we read this book together and throughout this ministry year as we read your book together that we would be shaped by the words of scripture so that our hearts would be molded into the shape of the heart of the word Jesus himself and that would inspire us on to action and justice and deeper community and beauty and all of our values that you've drawn to our attention as a community Thank you for your grace. We step into the waterfalls of your grace now at your table. May it be for us the body and blood of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, let's continue to work. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.